this is scholarly work which documents hard facts and irrefutable evidence to make us and the world aware of how breaking india forces are working overtime to attain their goal and how they have succeeded and i i hope and pray that the indians and the corporate houses which you have mentioned i am sure they may review their strategy after reading your book friends it gives me great pleasure to having you all with us on the occasion of the release of shri rajiv malhotra and vijwa viswanathan's book swakes in the ganga breaking india 2.0 the authors deserve congratulations to their painstaking research reflected in this massive volume This 800-page book is a sequel to the 2011 book Breaking India by the authors. It's a great work of scholarship and advocacy. It alerts India and Indians to the ongoing information war conducted through academics and academicians with a motive to raise questions about India's civilizational civilization. culture and society and to spread this faction a special thanks to excellency uh, shri arif mohammad khan as i was mentioning to him i told him that welcome to welcome back home ladies and gentlemen those of you who don't know the honorable governor is part of the viaf family Twelve years ago, when our founder director, and now the NSA, Sir uh, Ajit Doval, was putting the various components into place for the VIF, he wanted to have a body of people, intellectuals, nation lovers, and those who could become the pathfinders for the VIF to. the quest to their quest of excellence his excellency the governor was one of the top people in that list of the list of the uh, intellectuals we gathered together may i now invite the honorable governor of kerala shri arif mohammad khan ji to kindly come and address the gathering lieutenant general shri rk sahani ji Shri Rajiv Malhotra ji author of the book co-author Shrimati Vijay Vishwanathan Shri Kamal Sibal ji General G D Bakshi ji and very distinguished members of this people who have gathered in this hall of Vivekananda International Foundation 
first I must express my gratitude for the kind and gracious words of Lieutenant General Sahani Saab. It has been said that the more you try to know things, you study books, more you become aware of your own ignorance. I was not aware about the existence of this book, uh, whose name was Breaking India, Western Interventions in Dravidian and Dalit Fault Lines. And what Mr. Vedinathan has written, the very first few lines, he says, India is reeling under pressure from persistent attacks on its culture and civilization. These attacks are well coordinated, funded. I mean, naturally, whatever he has written is based on the study of your book. And he must have seen the evidence in the book. These attacks are well coordinated, funded, orchestrated, and use Indians to exploit fault lines in India. To me, this is very important. Saying Indians are used to exploit the fault lines, which being a democracy and open society are quite visible. Reference is also, I've already mentioned about the reference has been made to this earlier book. Uh, and the book establishes the link between Marxism and what is called critical race theory, popularly known as vocism. It is certainly a matter of concern that the powers of prominent academic institutions, rather leading institutions, is being used to strengthen divisive identity politics of India, a legacy of the colonial past, in the same manner as British had devised the policy of divide and rule, masquerading as their civilizing mission. I feel that any problem which we face, we should try to find a solution which is rooted in Indian traditions and Indian values. Whatever plans are made, the response must not be through the same Western paradigm because it only increases tensions. The, the, we also need to, I must say we also need to because it has been said that they are taking advantage of the fault lines and this legacy of divisive identity politics in India. Therefore, we uh, I would like to uh, draw your attention to something which has been articulated very powerfully in Bhagavad Gita. 
which says uddaret atmana atmanam na atmanam afsadayet atma eva hi atmana bandhu atma eva ripu atmana it is your self which is friend of yourself it is yourself which is enemy of yourself the message is absolutely clear the message is at that further in the next shloka it has been it has been uh, explained that in which condition yourself become friends of yourself and in which condition yourself becomes enemy of yourself if you are in control of your senses indri indriya nigra self restraint self control when senses are under your control then yourself becomes friend of yourself and when you are not able to uh, control your senses then the same self becomes enemy of yourself so uh, we must be this is a great contribution because we can uh, in order to devise effective plans to defend yourself you need full information and you have given that information in abundance but our response must be rooted in our own values and our value is i i strongly have this view that uh, we as indians we have every right to feel as feel proud of our heritage but the at the same time i also feel a sense of shame because we have not been fair and loyal to our cultural heritage the whole if we look at the whole world these civilizations and the cultures what we see around today this has happened during a period of last 150 years where diversity and plural bare societies after becoming democracies after that famous uh, clash between the church and the state when they became democracies and they started accepting diversity but india since the time of its civilizational or cultural journey made the proclamation ekam sad vipra bahuda vadanti diversity acceptance and respect for diversity has been part of the way of our life where this culture has not been all over the world the cultures were defined by the race of the person human beings no human being can live alone we need society we need the strength of the society strength of the unity to go ahead now how to create that unity on what basis society should be established that is the beginning of the civilizations all over the world so somewhere it was the race which was used 
to unite people and create a civilization. Somewhere it was language, somewhere it was the uh, faith tradition. We, have, we believe in the same God. Our mode of worship is the same, there we should be one. What the Indian thought leader said, whom we call Rishis, right from beginning, they considered that all these parameters are exclusive. If you choose the color of the skin as the defining paradigm, then all others are left out. Who belong to other different races? If you choose language, people who speak other languages, they are left out. Faith tradition, India has always been. It is not last 2000 years when people belonging to Semitic religions first arrived in India. Uh, Jews in the year when the, the temple of Solomon was destroyed. Christians in the first uh, century itself. And many of us are not even, I, even I was not aware that our Christianity is 300 years older than the European Christianity. Islam came here, the second mosque after Medina was built in India during the lifetime of the Holy Prophet. And who built it? Not Muslims. But the local, local Hindu monarch, he built that mosque and it is named after him in Tirshur district of Kerala. So our thought leaders, who are generally described as Rishis, Munis, they, they refused to accept any paradigm which was exclusive. Therefore, what they said, what, uh, how Indian culture was defined? Indian culture was defined through Atma, soul. The four muts which have been established by great Shankaracharya, we say that he established four muts in four different corners of the country. Buildings do not create unity. What is important and what we do not talk about is, he gave one Mahavakya from each Veda to these muts. Four muts, four Mahavakya from four different Vedas. The same divine which dwells in me, dwells in you. Tattvamasi. Ahim Brahmasmi, second Tattvamasi. Pragyanam Brahma. Wisdom is Brahma. Wisdom is God. I am Atma Brahma. This soul is Brahma. So Indian, Indian culture was... Gurudev Rabindranath Tagore, while accepting his, uh, uh, when he received the Nobel Prize, like Swami Vivekananda had said in, in Chicago, that I come from, I represent a civilization culture, where 250 million people, they start their day with this sutra, Ruchinam Vaichitriya Dirju Kutil Nana Pajusham Nirdameko Gamyastamsi Paisa Mandavi. Oh Lord, we human beings, 
we are like various watered bodies they originate from their sources they take straight and crooked pathways and ultimately merge into the sea likewise we human beings depending prakriti anti bhutani it has been said each one does on the according to the disposition on which one is born or with which one is born so we we have you you can you can make an make an experiment four or five people belonging to the same family subscribing to the same faith tradition give them each one paper and say write five lines your idea of god and members of the same family if you ask them to write five or 10 lines each one will write differently why like our faces are different our minds are also different we perceive things differently we articulate differently and this difference this diversity of the human nature this diversity of the nature this was discovered appreciated accepted by the thought leaders of india i was referring to to gurudev rabindranath tagore he also said the same thing while accepting the nobel prize he said i represent a culture where it where it has been highlighted yastu sarvani bhutani atmanye vanu pashit sarvabhuteshu chatmanam tato na viju gupt se which means that the basic lesson of the indian culture is to place yourself in the position one who sees the self in all beings and all beings in self there is no scope for him to feel any aversion or hatred or even indifference towards anybody that is what indian culture is about unfortunately these fault lines although it is said that every people every nation goes through the cycle of decline and fall but i personally feel that the teaching of indian culture you can also say the bhartiya darshan because dharm ka matlab to religion nahi hai ye to main at least i am confident ki dharm ka matlab religion to nahi hai it's a way of life and one has it's also identity you have several identities you have identity as as child of some parents putra dharm putri dharm you have children you have pita dharm you are spouse of somebody you have that dharma you are in public life you have sarvajanik dharma you have so many identities so our when why why our history if india was india was no 11th 12th century the european renaissance has not fully taken off or has it had it oh, no not yet baghdad under the abbasis 
and that is the period which is called golden period of, of Islam. Baghdad, by that time, the military conquest, that phase was already over. The intellectual activities and the intellectual activities started. We do not know. We only know that Arabs had translated the Greek knowledge into Arabic and then it was retranslated into European languages. But most of the people do not know that their intellectual activities started with the arrival of Kanak, a pandit from Sindh who, who took nine or ten books with him. And the most important book which fascinated the then ruler, Mansur, was uh, Suri Siddhant. Some portions of the book were translated and he was absolutely fascinated. And he appointed one Fazari to assist Kanak, Kanak Pandit, and translate it into, uh, he appointed him to translate into Arabic with the help of Kanak Pandit. That book was translated and it was given the title of Hind and Hind Sindh. Now the ruler at Baghdad and ruler in the Arab ruler in Spain, they were at loggerheads. They had very, uh, they did not have good relations. So this ruler in Spain came to know that some important Indian book is being translated into Arabic. And naturally, the Baghdad, they will not give a copy of this book to me. Therefore, it is well documented in Tabri and in other, other Arab historians. They have also written about it, that the ruler of the Spain paid huge bribe to the scribes. Printing press was not there. They used to write by hand. He paid huge bribe to the scribes to procure a copy of Hind Sindh. And from there it was translated in most of the European language. And they, they acknowledge that the, all space studies later on have, were based on this book, which Arabic book, Sanskrit book originally, translated into Arabic and then translated into various European languages. The, the library, which was after Europe became Christian, the library of Plato was locked down saying that this is pagan knowledge. You are aware of that. This uh, uh, son, of, uh, uh, son of Harun Rashid, he writes a letter to Emperor Justinian saying that I have come to know that all these books are lying under lock. So why don't you give some of them to us? But that is the second phase. The first phase was in, they started Baitul Hikmah. You call it university, you call it Bureau of Translation, you call it an Institute of Learning, whatever it was. But Baitul Hikmah undertook the translation of Sanskrit books into Arabic. And then later, Mamun wrote to Justinian, saying that these books are under lock. Can you give some of them to us? The meeting to consider this request, it continued, the Arab historians say, that it 
lasted three days to consider that letter. Why? Because most of them were of, of the opinion that this is pagan knowledge. The Arabs are on the rise. Give everything to them and then they will destroy themselves. That was the attitude at that time. And the karma of camels which carried those books, all books were loaded on the camels and they were sent there. And that is the period which is called, not the period of our military conquest, this period. And this is started as an Indian, I feel proud that this work is started with the translation of Indian books, Sanskrit books. The whole of Europe, they call Arabic numerals. Arabs don't say Arabic numerals. They say Hindasa, something which has come from India. The engineer is called Mohandis because it has something to do with mathematics. So India, India was described as knowledge destination. Today we hear about this uh, um, thing, Vishwaguru. This was a reality. You, you see Tabri, you see Ibn Kasir, you see Ibn Asir, because that is why I said 10th and 11th century, the European Renaissance has not yet taken off fully. But Baghdad was rife with intellectual activities. And these books were written mostly end of the 10th, uh, beginning of the 11th century and 12th century, most of these history books. And most of them are in 10 volumes, 11 volumes, 12 volumes, even 17 volumes. And each one of them says the first chapter they have devoted to India. And they say there are only five major civilizations in the world. Five major civilizations in the world. Iranian civilization is known for its splendor, majesty. Romans for their beauty. Chinese for their craftsmanship and obedience to the rulers. Turks for their bravery. And India is the only civilization which is known for promoting knowledge and wisdom. So it was not as if somebody is, oh, oh, TV serial hota tha, So this is not a Mungeri Lal Sapna. This was a reality. Mujhe, I, I'm, I'm saying with all honesty before you that this question used to bother me a lot. That if India was knowledge destination, if India was recognized as knowledge civilization, why history has been so cruel to us? And I had right from my high, because I had started participating in the debate competitions, essay writing competitions since my school days. And I was very fortunate to have very good teachers who were really helpful to me. I asked, this question, posed this question to so many people, never got the answer. Finally, I got the answer in the writing of Swami Vivekanand and in more detail in the writing of Swami Rangnath Nanda. 
his famous four volumes, Eternal Values for a Changing Society, Parivartan, Sam Parivartan Shield Samaj Ke Liye Sanatan Mulle. And there he says, he quotes from Srimad Bhagavat, Saraswati Gyan, Saraswati, Saraswati Gyan Yatha Khalv Sati. He says, we were a people. In fact, I will forget. Therefore, the second thing I will say later. He says that we were the devotees, worshippers of Master Saraswati. But when we started denying access to knowledge to our own people, practically we turned into villains of Master Saraswati. And because we ceased to be loyal and faithful to our own traditions, to our own cultural values, therefore history also became cruel to us. And he said that when this access to knowledge was denied, in the process, the society was weakened. And the result is before us. There was huge, huge armies were not needed. Even 500 people riding horses could have gone anywhere and taken control of any area. And we, 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 this is mentioned in our books, that the man who was, who was in the field plowing, he was not bothered who has come. Even Tulsi Das Ji has written, Koi nirapho hame kahani, dasi ka ban rani. That attitude was built over a period of time. And when we started, I'm not going, I'm not going to say that we changed uh, the situation. I'm saying we, revert, we started reverting back to our original tradition. Then within 25 years, we came into a position where we not only won the battle, but created a new country on the map of the world. When we reverted to the, when we tried to revive and restore our original tradition. That is our original tradition. We are this country. Swami Vivekananda, he says, what is the purpose of life? He said, purpose of life, you think pursuit of happiness is the purpose of life? He says, no. And an emphatic no. He says, purpose of life is not pursuit of happiness. Because if that is the summum and bonum of your life, then what prevents me from making you unhappy in order to become happy myself? He said, the purpose of life is to Acquire knowledge. Tapa swadhyay nirittam. Ever devoted to the pursuit of knowledge. And then he says, and what is the purpose of knowledge? If I am going to devote my life to pursue knowledge, then what is the purpose of knowledge? Then Swami Vivekananda himself replies. He says, purpose of knowledge is to, to develop the ability to find unity in diversity. Because then only, then only it is possible when I realize 
that uh, I realize that we are all spiritually connected. It is not possible that what will, uh, there I think saying in English, what goes around comes around. Indians had, Indian thought leaders had highlighted this thing thousands of years back. And knowledge, we were known for, there is no reason we cannot become, wish to become a Vishwaguru. It is not a matter for, it is not a matter of position. How one can become Vishwaguru? Our sages, our thought leaders, they had clear idea how India, uh, why India was Vishguru and using the same idea it can certainly again acquire that is status. Etad desha parshu trasya sakashadagraj anmana som som charitram shikcheran prithviyam sarvam anava. They had envisaged that India will be such knowledge society that people from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different cultures, they will come to India not to study Indian culture, not to study Indian literature, to study their own culture and their own civilization and their own literature, they will come to India. How that can happen? It can happen only we have that kind of teachers. So that people will come to study about their own things they will come to India. And that is why possibly Gurudev Rabindranath Tagore in one of his speeches said, he said, India cannot attain true independence unless it is recognized that her foundation is in mind. Which with its diverse powers and confidence in those powers goes on all the time creating Swaraj for itself. And he said, I love India. Remarkable words. He said, I love India. Not because I cultivate the idolatry of, geog idolatry of geography. I love India not because I have had the good fortune to be born in her soil. But I love India. And please mark these words, how profound they are. He said, I love India because India has been able to save through tumultuous ages. The living words which shoot from the illuminated consciousness of her children. That is the importance and significance of word. We can see all around us, all over the world, not just in India. The monuments which are created by hand, the monuments which are created by physical power, they have an uh, expiry time. Howsoever big, howsoever important, how even places of worship. Today we see Khandar, ruins, but the monuments which have been created by mind, whether it is the scriptures, it is epics in India, other parts of the world, they outlast everything. Why? That is the power of the mind, what, what, what Gurudev says, that unless we recognize and acknowledge that India's foundation is in mind, 
and we had that great tradition. And finally, I will say, sir, I think I have already taken much time. I will say that because your book draws our attention towards that, that all these great traditions, cultural values, ideals, our tragic past tells us that if we are not in a position, if we are not powerful enough to defend our way of life, to defend our ideals, to defend our values, then we were subjected to slavery. And somehow, Ahinsa came to be known. Even Gandhiji has not defined that way. Ahinsa came to be known shunning violence. Yes, that is part of it. But Ahinsa basically means renunciation of hatred. No hate for anybody. The two great battle accounts, Ramayana and Mahabharata, the vanquished was not insulted. In fact, if you, if you look at it more deeply, then Indian culture does not have room for evil. We have the concept of Vipreet Bhakti, because whether it is the Raman or Kumkara, it is Kans and uh, what is the other name? Pal, Shishupal. The, the stories tell us that originally they were Jay and Vijay, two gatekeepers of Bhagwan Vishnu who were cursed by Sanat Kumars. They had to take birth as human beings. And Lord promised to them that I will also take birth to liberate you from that human condition. Therefore, in order to, and it has been said, Agartha Chaturo Veda, Prashta Sasharam Dhanu, Idam Brahmam, Idam Chhatram. Shastaradapi, Shastaradapi. First, you should be armed with knowledge. What in today's world is known as soft power? What this book is all about. But in order to ensure that there is no threat to your way of life, there is no threat to your ideals, there is no threat to the way you want to pursue your life. In order to ensure that, chhatram is also needed. The physical power is also needed. There was a stage in our history when we had all the brain power, but we ignored the other power. And we paid the price for it. So we should be in a position, first use the power of logic, power of reason. But in the name of Ahinsa, you cannot allow yourself to be overtaken by the, those who have a different kind of mindset, who want to dominate over you, rule over you. So that lesson we had forgotten. Namaste, Honorable Governor and friends. I'm delighted to be here to share a brief overview of this book.
before I say anything, I want you to know that the big size need not scare you. For most purposes, if you read, it's designed to be read at three levels. If you read the introduction, and then there's a one-page overview for every chapter, like an executive overview, which gives you a summary of what's in that chapter. You will get the highlights and the map of the whole thesis. And then every chapter is written as a standalone thing. So you, you can dive into whichever chapters you want. You don't have to read in sequence. So it's written in multiple levels for that purpose. We know that India has been attacked by Washington Post, BBC, New York Times, US Congress and Senate, foreign relations from various countries on charges like India lacks democracy or the democracy is kind of going down, charges as, as aggressive as fascism, charges that it lacks human rights and social justice, and on and on. And it seems as if this whole civilizing mission that the Europeans had started has now become an American obsession. It's gone across the Atlantic. And with that transfer from Europe to the United States, the role of Oxford University has shifted to Harvard University. This is a very important finding and a very important thing that people in India ought to know about. Most of the people here are aware of these individual fires that keep coming and then we have to do respond. We have to say, okay, we get, we, we get defensive and we say now, uh, this is not true about us and that is not true about us. And then a week or two later, there's another attack and another attack. Whether it's dismantling Hindutva, whether it is uh, accusing various organizations of uh, malfeasance, all, all sorts of things keep coming. But what is lacking in these responses is going deeper than one instance at a time. We are responding one instance at a time. So somebody lights a fire and then we put it out, running around with a fire extinguisher, but that's not going to solve the problem. You have to go deeper into what's causing the problem. So the first level is to go deep into the issue itself and find out where it's coming from. Now, those who have done this kind of research have, uh, are, in our opinion, looking at old causes. So they either look at the global church or they look at, uh, you know, uh, so George Soros or uh, Rothschilds and things like that. Now, those are, of course, issues. But we've discovered that a far greater issue is more recent and of much greater magnitude. And that's what we wanted to bring to your attention. So this book goes into the source. We've identified the think tanks where this poison is being generated and from where these snakes are being developed and nurtured and exported all over the world, including in, in, into India. Now, the focus on Harvard, there are many such think tanks, but we focus on Harvard because it's clearly the largest, has the biggest brand value, has the biggest ability to spread knowledge, and a large number of Indians go there and take it as the Vishwaguru, as the deity, as the Bhagwan, whatever they say must be true, including our Justice of the Supreme Court, who keeps quoting from Harvard, the very same sources that we are criticizing, the very same books that we are responding to as breaking India forces are the, the adhikaris in the, in the eyes of the, chief, of the justice of the, of the Indian Supreme Court, 
that uh, that keeps saying that he keeps quoting them as uh, some kind of uh, authority so somehow the indian supreme court has turned harvard university's professors as sort of like the adhikaris of uh, evaluating indian society and indian law which is very very strange i mean that, i mean one has to talk about decolonizing the supreme court now perhaps which is a topic we have to start talking about certainly it's a, it's a matter of debate i hope it's taken in the spirit of free thinking uh, and, and not as something antagonistic or insulting that we can talk we can debate the premises on which uh, some of the supreme court uh, discussions are going on so besides looking at the center where things are happening and who's doing this we also looked at go went deeper and, and looked at what is the ideology what is the metaphysics what is the theoretical framework on which this is being done and that is a huge story in itself it's full of surprises because you would not expect that to be happening you would not expect that the united states of america of all places has become the center for a reincarnated form of marxism a, a, a reinvented marxism called critical race theory has entered and why it is marxism in a new form is what we are describing and then nor would you be uh, aware that uh, or most of you that this critical race theory has now been transformed into critical caste theory and that's a harvard project critical caste theory and critical caste theory basically says that the dalits are the blacks of india and the non dalits are the whites of india and basically indian society is a slavery situation like in america and so the american history of slavery and oppression of blacks is the frame and the lens through which to study india and indian society so a lot of the bizarre conclusions that you fight keep fighting you have to see where they're coming from what their argument is so that you can respond appropriately and then it doesn't stop there another bombshell so there is levels of bombshells in this book another bombshell is that a lot of this funding a lot of the sponsorship of this kind of work in harvard is being done by indian philanthropists this will also surprise you so we are not scared of shy of naming names we have named names in this book hundreds of times of people who have given their family name and their money in tens of millions of dollars to set up various centers and schools and departments and and chairs named after them at harvard whose job is to do this kind of work and and whether they're doing it intentionally or unintentionally whether they are ignorant or whatever the game is we don't know what's in their mind but the end result is that a lot of harm is being done to bharat and to our civilization uh, and this is legitimized because indians are funding it so people think that it must be legitimate because these are well known indians they are highly regarded as patriots but for some reason they're doing this now the surprises don't stop there because what what starts at harvard does not remain at harvard it gets exported so a lot of this export of this poison through the snakes that are carrying it ends up in india so now the the the, the book also goes into how indian universities uh, you know you know many of them uh, like ashoka kriya in the south uh, azim premji's university godrej's culture labs tis in mumbai etc etc uh, have basically imported american idea of uh, social justice uh, and and liberal arts uh, humanities this kind of thing harvard is one of the best universities in the world for stem science technology engineering medicine but we are not talking about that we are talking about the the way south asia india is being studied 
as a problem, as a serious problem from a humanities point of view. So the, the we, a large part of the book also goes into each of these universities in India that have been set up as a mirror or a, of, of Harvard type of work. And that is kind of importing this knowledge and distributing to the young people of this country. There, is also pro there are also projects to dismantle Indian family life. And very clearly saying that Indian family life must be dismantled because it is oppressive, it transmits oppressive ideas to the next generation. In other words, you and your family unconsciously are a product of oppression. You are the oppressor. Most of, most of you sitting here and myself, we are oppressors according to this theory. And therefore, the family life is, a, is going to transmit this oppressor mentality to the next generation and therefore the family has to be dismantled. So this whole business of uh, you know, oppressor, oppressed, that's a Marxist idea, and how the counter narrative has to dismantle the structures that the oppressor has built, which means our Vedic heritage and our structures, all the way into in, uh, including the mon modern nation state. Modern nation state is also structure. So this whole business is going on. Now, besides universities being in infected with this, besides family life being attacked by this, there is also uh, at the school level, at school education level, and uh, uh, corporate, corporate ESG, corporate diversity, equity, inclusion, and various movements like that are ways of bringing this sort of wokeism into the Indian business through the HR department. So this is an ongoing thing going, uh, you know, in the last few years it's accelerated. I'll just show you how this book is designed. So there is a, it's a, it's a series of rejoinders. It's like a book review of a major work that somebody has done and our response to it. So you can go and pick whichever chapters you want and that's all, that you don't have to read the whole thing. So this is a bestseller by an African-American. It's on Oprah, it's on all kinds of uh, American uh, media. And basically its premise is that racism in America originated as a result of caste in India. So you're being blamed for racism in America. Because according to this, these, this Aryan theory and all that, and this caste system started, and the British picked it up in India, and the British brought it to United States. Because the English people, when they migrated, they brought it to the United States, these ideas. And then Hitler also got it from there. So, you know, we really get blamed for a whole lot of things. Then, this is written by Professor Ajanta Subramaniam at Harvard, an Indian. She has written that IITs, and this whole book is about IITs, are a, basically a caste structure that privileges Brahmins and oppresses Dalits. And that is in the DNA and the very structure and texture of the, of the IITs. She gives the whole history from the very beginning, how they were set up, why they were set up, and they basically reproduce uh, caste privilege. And so the, the IITs have, should be dismantled. So this is, a, this is a published by Harvard University Press, not a trivial press, but a very powerful press in the world, in the academic world. So each, there are chapters on each of them. Each of these books, we're doing a 30, 40, 50 page chapter saying here is what they're saying and here is our response. And now this, this is, uh, this is uh, Suraj Yengde. He is the poster boy of uh, Dalit activism at Harvard, Harvard Kennedy School. And he has launched what, what is now, now the Afro-Dalit movement, the Afro-Dalit movement. The Afro-Dalit movement says that the Dalits are, Dalits and Africans are brothers, 
and and they they are they are the oppressed and then they are bringing other minority religions to as oppressed they are bringing in lgbtq as oppressed they are bringing in feminists they are bringing in all kind of people who supposedly are oppressed and all of them united have to dismantle the nation india being the largest case study or the largest place where they are exporting because it's a soft target china won't let them in uh, most countries won't let them in uh, singapore has kicked them out they were there singapore has kicked them out uh, france is having fights and kicking these people out but india in india they're welcome because the industrialists are supporting this our industrialists are supporting it and the supreme court justice is welcoming them and they have universities here set up for distributing this kind of knowledge so the the the, the book is basically uh, each chapter is a major story of one particular part of this ecosystem and you can study one of them one of those chapters five of them 10 of them there are 22 chapters each one being a separate completely separate independent you can read them in any sequence so i'll stop with that and invite my co-author to continue this discussion thank you very much honorable governor friends namaste sarvebhya given what rajiv ji said and that this is uh, bif uh, i just want to make a few observations regarding national security both india and china deal with harvard university india gets wokism whereas uh, the ccp uh, aparatchiks along with uh, think tanks um, and scholars at harvard figure out ways to lobby for china and take the pro ccp stance there has been there have been at least two dozen uh, prosecutions of uh, us academics uh, for attempting to steal te technology uh, from us universities and this is a problem uh, for the united states national security now we have opened the floodgates for liberal arts colleges uh to open in india and there's a lot of data mining lots of things happening so should the mhrd ministry also look at national security apart from human resource development and education because this is a a pathway uh for um for for a lot of uh national security uh you know breaches that can occur number 3 is that in the united states very well known think tanks like the brookings institution the carnegie endowment are compromised seriously compromised uh, some of the trustees who sit on the brookings institute for example have worked with the ccp on the belt and road initiative um, very openly and there is this revolving door between um you know between think tanks and academics in the us given that is this a problem for india as well should we be mapping these uh, institutions the fellows from these uh, highly regarded think tanks their footprint in india what are they doing what are these fellows doing uh, and would that be a compromise of some sort for indian national security and the last point i'd like to make is we have a lot of um, 
diplomats uh, and say uh, and bureaucrats that retire should we be keeping track of what they are doing are they in positions that could compromise national security is there are there alarm bells that could ring because again the uh, election commissioners people in um, in foreign service when they when they retire they take on positions as fellows in think tanks in universities what exactly are they doing yeah so these are things that perhaps we should start looking into because threats to national security is not always on the borders geographically they can also be through universities think tanks and come in most sort of benign looking forms so with that uh, we will talk more during the panel discussion thank you Thank you.